Hey, we are so thankful that you're taking the time to tune into Grumwatt Church's podcast. It's our hope that this is an encouragement to you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about all things Grumwatt or for more info on our in-person gatherings, you can check us out at grumwatt.com. Now lean in. We're expectant for how God is going to use this time to speak to you today. Well, good morning, church. How are we doing? Are we feeling good? Everybody, I'm just going to pause again here. Everybody already signed up for a group, grumlaw.com slash groups. I mean, those things fill up fast, so my recommendation would be to not delay. Do not put that off. Again, grumlaw.com slash groups. And, and, and seriously, that, that has not been overstated. That the single greatest way to connect with other people within this faith community is to get into a connect group. You have no idea what God has waiting for you on the other side of taking that step. As scary, and I get this, as that might maybe feel. Uh, seriously, and by the way, this isn't actually what I'm supposed to be talking about right now. This is just kind of bonus material. You're welcome. You want to know the number one reason people end up leaving a church? Or, or I shouldn't be so cynical. Let me be more positive. You want to know why people stay at a church for the long haul? But believe it or not, this tear comes down. It's not the preaching. It's it's not the music. It's sometimes, I'll give it to you, the kids program, but usually not even that. It's almost always exclusively, very simply, it comes down to connection. Or or a very simple question, am I known? See, if you don't get connected, and and I know this is maybe going to sound a touch dramatic, but, but it's just true, you're quite literally counting down the days until you eventually leave that environment. So, so as your pastor, as, as, as much as I can implore you without getting on my knees and begging you, and honestly, I, I would do that if I thought it would help, and that, that's not beneath me, sign up for a connect group. Get, get connected with other people while also connecting with God at a deeper level. Uh, I'll double down on one of the things that we've been saying since day one around here. Connect groups are the single most important thing that we do around here. Yes, even more than what we do here on Sunday morning. So again, grumlaw.com slash groups. Sign up for a group like right now. Now, before we go any further, let me pray for us and pray for this morning that we would be open to hearing whatever it is that God wants to speak to us. God, we thank you. We thank you for these opportunities that we have to come together and listen and hear from your word, allow you to uh, teach us, allow you to shape our thoughts, allow you to shape our convictions. And I just pray, as I uh, so often do here on these Sunday mornings, that we would just have open hearts ready to receive whatever it is that, again, you want to speak to each of us. It's in your precious, saving, redeeming name that we pray. Amen. Now now today, uh, we are heading into part two of a seven-part series that we began last week titled Different. We're very simply put, we're asking and answering, that's kind of important, uh, we're answering the question, what makes Grumlaw different? What are those unique convictions that God has ignited in our hearts? What is it that we, that we really value around here? What makes us different, as I asked last week, from the 300,000 churches that we have in America? So, so I gave a lot more background into why we're doing this series right now, what it is that, that led us to this point last week and last week's message, but, but much of it centered around God. Over the last year, reminding me as well as the leadership of this church why we started this church to begin with. What, what is that fire that, that God ignited that led to a group of people saying, Let, let's do this, Let, let's actually start a church? What, what was that holy discontent? 
And, and what came out of that season were seven values, some that'll look familiar, others that might feel like they've taken an increased level of importance over the last couple of years. And those values, as we unveiled last week, are belong before you believe, we uphold biblical truth, contagious joy, live generously, we expect God to move, assume the best, and, and obedience is the win. Now, now, if you missed last week, it, it was significant in that it not only laid the groundwork for the entire series, you never really want to miss the first week of a series, but, but it also introduced a value that sort of serves as the filter for everything that we do around here. This value of belong before you believe. We make no apologies about this. We did not start this church for disgruntled Christians who got fed up with their last church. Now, by the way, if that would describe you, it's, it's okay if you're here, but, but we started this church for people who, who don't know much about God or Maybe they used to feel close to God, church used to be a part of their life, but for whatever reason, they've just kind of slowly drifted away. And now you're back and you're beginning to explore again. We very intentionally try to create an environment where anyone feels comfortable walking through our doors, a safe place to ask questions, to express doubts, a safe place to explore your faith. So following lockstep with what it is that Jesus taught, and more importantly, the example that he himself provided, you can belong at Grumlaw long before you embrace everything that's written in this book, long before you embrace every single word that we share here on Sunday mornings. Well, we're confident that, that you'll find this to be a non-judgmental, inviting, come-as-you-are type of place, a, a community that something inside of you says, this is exactly what my heart, this is exactly what my soul has been yearning for. Now, I obviously had a lot more to say about that last week. And again, like I already mentioned, you don't want to miss week one of a series. So if you were not here last week, I would highly encourage you to head to grumlaw.com slash messages and get yourself caught up or, or find our sermons every week uh, via podcast, wherever it is that you snag those podcasts from, iTunes, Spotify, wherever. Now, one of the temptations, uh, especially, actually only, if you grew up going to church, is when you hear a value like belong before you believe introduced, it's to think to yourself, I knew it. I had heard about churches like this before. I'd never actually seen one, but this is a progressive church. And if you're watching right now, and that, that's a term that is completely foreign to you, I'm not insinuating anything political, but, but there's a movement among American Christian churches in particular where the Christian faith is being reformed via the secular insights of postmodernism. And it's insidious, it's deceptive in that a lot of the core beliefs within progressive Christianity aren't being negated. That things like the Trinity, Jesus being the Son of God, love others as Jesus loves you. I mean, that's all still there. So on the surface, you go, oh, this is great. This place has just placed a greater point of emphasis on certain areas, areas that I care about, that this cultural moment cares about. Loving thy neighbor, treating everyone with respect, social justice. That they just care more about that stuff than the old stuffy church down the street. But, but at its core, we're all basically the same. We all basically believe the same stuff. But, but then what happens is you do a little digging and, and you start piecing together what, what appears at least on the surface to be these rather innocuous comments and sermons and, and worship setups on, on social media posts. And, and, and these little red flags kind of start popping up. That, that in isolation, they don't seem like a big deal, but collectively, they seem to start carrying some real weight. Very plainly stated, within progressive Christianity, a pick-and-choose approach has been adopted. Meaning we celebrate when Jesus extends grace to the woman caught in adultery, but we sort of ignore the part when he tells her, hey, stop living in that sinful way. The way of life that, by the way, has led to your rather miserable existence to this point. 
let's almost exclusively celebrate words from the lips of Jesus like, hey, the most important commandment is this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, shrug your shoulders at that. But the second, hey, this is something, is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself, as an as important as loving God. In fact, Jesus kind of lumps them together because he says no other commandment is greater than these. In fact, you express your love for God by loving the people around you. And we should talk about this, but not exclusively. Because this, and these types of messages, they tell everyone, hey, we're open for business. Get on board with the Jesus train. After all, who would not be for this? But, but then we'll scoot right on passwords from the same Jesus like, hey, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's like, well, <laughs> repent from what? Aren't we all just sort of good people who just need to love other people better and then all is going to go well for us? Well, it turns out not so much. In fact, central to following Jesus is repenting and turning away from our previous way of doing things and actually following the teachings of Jesus, all of Jesus. But, but we're not as for that message as love your neighbor in a culture that idolizes embracing your true self. Jesus, again, in a less than popular verse, he tells us, hey, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily, this bloody poignant reminder of, of crucifixion, crucifying your own way of doing things, and, and follow me. See, progressive Christianity gives a hard pass to these verses, the verses that might stand in opposition to culture and embraces those that fall in line with this particular cultural moment. Pick and choose, take stuff out of context, explain it away with loose contextual arguments, away with what makes me uncomfortable, and in with what affirms how I'm already feeling and what society celebrates. Now, now as we mentioned last week, we believe in creating safe, inviting environments that, that, that lead with love and grace, that, that assume the best, that, that don't lord Christian standards over people who have yet to embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We chase after those who do not know Jesus, but belong before you believe. We, we embrace this type of approach to ministry because this is exactly, as we talked about last week, what Jesus did for every single one of us. We, we invite you to belong before you believe and we unflinchingly, intensely, without apology, we uphold biblical truth. All of it. N not just the stuff that sits well with us, but perhaps even more importantly, the, the, the stuff that makes us squirm a little bit. The, the stuff that everything inside of us pushes back against. I, I'll just speak for me personally as a pastor. The stuff that would make my life a whole lot easier if it was not written in this book. Rather than approaching Scripture with our preconceived notions and our agendas, finding passages of Scripture that support our already staunch opinions, which you can easily do, by the way, we instead allow Scripture to shape and inform our thoughts and our convictions. Now, there are a lot of different directions that I could have gone with this message, but, but there's one connection in particular that, that I wanted to make sure was made today, a connection that I believe is of utmost importance. A common sentiment in this cultural moment, as already alluded to just a moment ago, is I love Jesus, but, but I'm not sure I agree with everything written in the Bible. Now, I'm not going to ask people right now, like raise hands, but, but I'm guessing just about every single one of us have heard some version of these words uttered. 
Or, or you yourself have maybe uttered these words, perhaps not that long ago. Don't, don't worry, I'm not about to shame you. In the book of John, this is one of those four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. Uh, right there at the beginning of the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, John was one of these people who had a front row seat to Jesus' entire earthly ministry. And he begins this documentation of the life of Jesus with these words. I want you to keep in mind, these are the very first words. He could have started in any way, and this is what he says. He says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The, the, the word was with God and the word was God. He, he existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The, the word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Now, now in a vacuum, <laughs> this passage reads like a Mad Lib. I mean, right? Like what's going on here? What's the word? Why is the same word being referred to as a he and a him? Like, what is it that we're missing here? It's also of some level of importance that, again, as I already alluded to, these are the very first words that John begins in his documentation of the life of Jesus. See, John was actually arguably closer to Jesus than any of the other people on this earth. He actually is often referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. So, so Jesus had the 12 disciples, his 12 best buddies. That then there was this inner circle of three of, John, of which John was a part of. And, and many biblical scholars have argued that John sat as the one, again, the one whom Jesus loved, the person closer to Jesus than anyone else. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are the three other gospel accounts, the three other biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. They are referred to as the synoptic gospels. It meaning they should be seen together. They focus on what Jesus taught and they focus on what Jesus did. But the gospel of John is much different. John focuses on who Jesus is. Th this unique perspective that he held as the one closer to Jesus than anyone else. So it would appear noteworthy, and this is the point I'm trying to make, that, that John could have started this biographical account in any way he wanted but yet he intentionally chooses these words. What is it that John is establishing? Now we get our term word here that we see throughout these first couple of verses from a Greek word, the language that this letter was originally penned in. Uh, it's a word called logos, which literally translated, and this would have actually been a very, very familiar term with that first century audience, a very common word, literally translated, it means the full expression of a thought. Here's what John wanted to make sure was exceedingly clear to anyone who would have picked up and read this account. Through Jesus, we see the totality of God. Through, through Jesus, we see the full expression of God. Not a version of God, but God himself. You, you want to know what God is like? Check out Jesus. In, in fact, just chapters later, John actually records for us this particular uh, interaction between Jesus and another one of his buddies named Philip. And, and, and Philip says to us, hey, uh, Lord, show us the Father and, and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? And, and he makes this very direct statement. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So, so why are you asking me to show him to you? I'll say it again. You want to know what God is like? Check out Jesus. He is the perfect expression of the Father. And to that first century group of Greek philosophers and Jewish rabbis, they were obsessed with God. 
They were obsessed with what God was like. So so a statement as bold as this, with, with people endlessly discussing the logos, it was clickbait before the internet. He knew that he would have them reading. Now, what's interesting is throughout Scripture, throughout the Bible, we see this word logos popping up all over the place. And sometimes in our English translations, it appears as the word, as it does, again, in those verses that we just read. But other times it appears as Jesus. And still other times it appears as the written word of God or the written message of God, but all three, and almost interchangeably. So is this a translational, a a scribal error, or or was this done intentionally? And and virtually every scholar agrees that this was done very, very intentionally. Why? Again, what was it that, that John was trying to establish and make sure that we, thousands of years later, would not miss? You cannot separate the word of God from the person of Jesus. I I, want to return to John's opening lines there. In in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Now let's take this this exact same clause, these exact same verses, and swap the word for, for Jesus. Let's read it again. In the beginning, Jesus already existed. Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Jesus And nothing was created except through Jesus. Jesus gave life to everything that was created, and Jesus brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Now, if you're like a Bible nerd like me, that's pretty fascinating. Unless you think I'm taking liberties, swapping those words in and out. Just nine verses later, not, not even the next chapter, nine verses later, John drops this on us almost to appease any doubts that some of us might be having. He says in verse 14, so the word became human and made his home among us. Well, who does that sound like it's talking about? He he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. The word the Logos, the totality of God, the full expression of God, Jesus made his home among us. You cannot separate the word of God from Jesus. One more example that we find in a letter titled Hebrews, also in the New Testament. It says, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. What do you suppose the original Greek word used here was from which we draw word of God? You guessed it, logos. Now, maybe you're watching right now, and this little jog down like nerd out Bible lane has been of little interest to you. I want to get back to where we started. I love Jesus, 
but, but I'm not sure I agree with everything written in the Bible. I, I don't know if I can get on board with all of that. With all due respect, this is impossible. I, I, I don't know how I can word it any stronger. This is antithetical to Jesus himself. You cannot separate the word of God from the person of Jesus. Come on, let's just think about this for a moment, logically. Why would John start his letter like this? Why would these writers, when using this word logo, sometimes kind of insinuate Jesus, and other times word of God, and other times just word? Here's the thing, the Greek language is so much more robust, so much richer than the English language. It's why, by the way, if you have a study Bible, there are all these little stars next to words and all these little footnotes that say a more literal translation might read dot, dot, dot. It's because we, we literally don't have the words to capture the intent half the time. So if the writers, here's my point, with a far more robust language wanted to write Jesus, they would have just put down Jesus. If they wanted to write written word of God, they would have stated that plainly. This was incredibly intentional to, to use this word logos interchangeably. <laughs> it's almost as if John and, and others were peering into the future and supposing what, what has quickly become acceptable and commonplace. It, it, it's almost as if they knew that people would be all about the Jesus of love and mercy and kindness and grace and forgiveness and would have a harder time swallowing the Jesus that tells us, and I quote, everyone will hate you because of me. It's almost as if John knew that we'd be tempted to pick and choose. And so he goes out of his way to make this painstakingly clear. You want to know what God is like, check out Jesus. And, and you want to know what, what Jesus is like? Then read his word. All of it. Church, when you and I choose to ignore or explain away pieces of Scripture, and, and I totally get this, by the way. I have admitted this many times publicly, that there is lots of stuff in here that rubs me the wrong way that complicates my life, that I resist, that, that, that makes my life, I'll just be honest, so much harder as a pastor. But, but when we choose to reject parts of this, we're not rejecting a text. We are rejecting Jesus himself. You cannot love Jesus if you do not love his word. To, to pick and choose your way through this text is to pick and choose your way through Jesus. To reject portions of Scripture is to reject Jesus himself. At the very core of Christianity, I mean, this is following Jesus 101. It is to be conformed into the image of Christ. Or, or, or to put it more plainly in less religious terms, to become more and more like Jesus. But, but when we choose to adhere to what sits well with us, while rejecting the stuff that we don't like or, or the stuff that inconveniences us, what we're literally doing the complete opposite. <laughs> we conform Jesus into our image. 
That is, we're attempting to pull Jesus down to our level. Make Jesus more like Shay. Well, let me remind us, Jesus is God, so <laughs> I got to ask you, you, you think he's going to go for that? We uphold biblical truth. Church, not because it sounds nice. Not because we're pushing back on society for the sake of being confrontational. But because the gospel, because Jesus requires it. Because we know his word is rooted in restoration. And ultimately what is best for each of us. Not rules for the sake of rules as it so often gets spun. No, God is so for you that he freely offered his son for your sin. As we talked about last week, it's not a condition of his love, but it is confirmation of his love. Just as we ask our kids to do some stuff that to them feels restrictive, we know we're looking further down the road than they often have the ability to see. We ask some stuff of them precisely because of our love for them. It is no different with God. I want to end with this and mind you, I left a lot of rocks unturned this morning. I promise this won't be the last time that we visit this topic. There's plenty more of this kind of content coming in this particular cultural moment that we find ourselves in. But we want to end with this. This might be incredibly obvious to some of you, but to others of you, maybe not. God is, is intensely personal. It, it's why he sent his son. God, more than anything else, he, he longs for a deep and intimate, a personal relationship with you. And in order for any relationship to thrive, there, there has to be communication. Now, we communicate with God through, through something called prayer, but it's not a one-way street. God also wants to communicate with, with you. Through the ages, he's done this through prophets. In Romans chapter 1, he tells us that he does this through his creation. He certainly communicates through us, through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus. Again, you want to know what God is like? Just check out Jesus, but most notably through the written word of God. Remember, unmistakably intertwined with Jesus himself. I don't want what I'm about to say right now to come across as an attack, but rather as an invitation. In the American Christian church, we have a Bible illiteracy epidemic, which is problematic for a whole lot of reasons. But most notably, we are depriving ourselves of the opportunity for God to communicate with us. When times get tough, we don't cling to principles, we cling to promises. And how do you know what God's promises are for your life if you are not allowing him to communicate to you through his word? How do we, how do you distinguish between lies and truth? The lies that the enemy is constantly whispering to you, the lies that we have in culture, the lies that, come on, we tell ourselves. That the Bible, his word, is the unchanging, inerrant, indisputable truth. The truth that cuts through the lies and points you to his truth, the truth. 
We can't discern his voice if, if we don't know his word. A very regular occurrence in my life is that people walk up to me and while they're having a conversation and they'll kind of confidently tell me, well, God told me to dot, dot, dot. And I hate to admit this, but more times than not, I look right back at him and I say, no, he didn't. Well, how could you know that? Because that flies directly in the face of what he has already communicated in his word. He's not going to contradict that. But, but, but most importantly, if you don't know his word, you don't know him. A God that desperately wants to be known. A God that, again, more than anything else, just wants to be close to you. He's not a text to be memorized. It's a relationship. It's what we were all made for. It's what he's begging for us to return to before sin destroyed that, that relationship with him. And then God in his infinite kindness sent us his son. He sent us Jesus. He sent the word so the relationship could be healed, so it could be mended, so it could be restored. I'm begging us, Scrumlaw Church, let us treat this morning as an invitation back to the garden, back into communion, back into relationship. A, a relationship that is soaked, that is drenched in his word.